John chapter 1, verse 1 through 13. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of humans. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of a husband, but of God, the word of the Lord. Gertrude Stein was a famous writer in the early 20th century. In her autobiography, she goes on a tour to promote one of her books. And while she's in San Francisco, she remembers her childhood home in Oakland the house she grew up in. And so she takes a ferry across the bay to go visit it. What is it about places we used to live that makes us want to revisit them? It, you know, it's not like the physical structure, is it? The childhood home, or, or if that home was a painful place for you, maybe it's some other place you used to live that holds better memories for you. But we, we long to go revisit those places um, because there's something special there, something significant, uh, something inside the physical structure, something that endures, almost as something uh, living that, that dwells within the physical structure of those places, something worth knowing, worth connecting with, something that matters. Gertrude Stein took a ferry across the bay to go to her childhood home to find that something special that was there. But when she got there, she found out the house had been torn down. And so she wrote one of the most famous and also one of the most tragic lines in all literature. She said, there is no there, there. Probably our greatest fear as human beings is being like that house. That when people encounter us, there would be no there, there. We long to be special, to know that we're significant, that inside the physical structure of our own bodies and our flesh and blood, our skin and our bones, that there's something more, something that endures, something that's worth knowing, worth connecting with, something that matters simply because it exists. We long to know that there's a there there in us, 
That's probably the deepest longing of our heart. It's also our biggest question and our greatest fear. Do I matter? Am I seen? Am I known? Am I loved? Am I treasured? We want to believe it's true, but if we're being honest with ourselves, we're not so sure. That question is always hanging over our head and always crying out in our heart. This passage that Joel just read answers that question and quiets our heart. How? We are in a series, a very short series, on the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. It's known as the prologue, and it answers the deepest questions of our heart, including this one, do I matter? We're going to find out the answer to that question by asking three other questions. The first question is, what are we looking for? The second question is, what are the ways we miss it? And lastly, how does it really come to us? What are we looking for? What are the ways that we miss it? And how does it really come to us? Okay, first, what are we looking for? Um, one of the big things we saw last week um, as we began this passage is the divinity of Jesus. John, in verse one, calls Jesus the word, which is the Greek word logos. He says not only was the logos with God, but the logos was God, and that this logos God entered history, entered time and space to become a human being in the person of Jesus Christ. And the essence of what Jesus came to do, we see it in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God. Now think about what that means. If you're a parent, there is nothing you won't do for your kids. So even if you know, your spouse were to come and ask you for something like a glass of water. There might actually be times when you would say, oh, I'm sorry, my hands are full. Could you get it yourself? But if a little child comes and asks the parent, you drop everything. Of course, honey, let me get that for you. There's instant access. That, that even if the child comes crying in the middle of the night, even especially if the child comes crying in the middle of the night, the parent is there for them. There's intimacy, there's access, and more than anything else, there's unconditional love. Unconditional love. That, that nothing says you matter more than the love of a parent who's really committed to you. How much more if we have that love from the God who created the universe? That would be, if you had a love like that, that would be the healing of all the wounds, the, the easing of all our aches, the answer to our deepest questions. That would be the end of fear and anxiety and insecurity. You would know that, that you matter, that you're known, that you're loved, that you're treasured. The gospel gives that to you. In fact, the gospel is the only thing that can really give that to you. Every other view of reality, every other approach to life struggles to really give it to you. And it's important to understand this. For instance, science is a wonderful gift to humanity. We should care about science. We should listen to science. We should honor and respect science. But, but if the only things that exist are things that we can discover by the scientific method, in other words, if there is no God and this world is all there is, then our belief, our, our value uh, in the, the, the unique worth, value, and dignity of human beings, that's just a mirage. So for instance, Stephen Hawking, the great physicist, once gave an interview, and he very famously said, the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one of among 100 billion galaxies. 
So he says we're scum. <laughs> now understand, when Stephen Hawking says we're scum, he's not saying we're morally corrupt. It's actually worse than that. To be morally corrupt, you would have to have at least enough dignity and moral agency to be able to choose between good and bad. Stephen Hawking is saying we don't even, we're not even that. We're like a growth, an insignificant, meaningless growth. That means a purely scientific approach to life looks at human beings and it says there is no there there. It can't give us the love and the worth and the value and the dignity that we long for as human beings. Only the gospel can do that because the gospel is the only view of reality that says that God, the God who created the universe, actually entered history as a human being, entered history as, as a unique individual, as a person. Do you realize what this means for us? Last week, I mentioned a French philosopher named Luc Ferry. He wrote an international bestseller called A Brief History of Thought. And in that book, he says that this prologue in John's gospel uh, caused a thought revolution in the ancient world that it continues through this day. But he says it didn't just change the way we look at God. It transformed the way that we view human beings. And here's how he puts it in the book. He says, by resting its case upon a definition of the human person and an unprecedented idea of love, Christianity was to have an incalculable effect upon the history of ideas. To give one example, it is quite clear that in the Christian reevaluation of the human person, of the individual as such, the philosophy of human rights to which we subscribe today would never have established itself. And understand, Luke Ferry is an atheist. He's not trying to convert people to Christianity. He's just being honest about the impact of Christianity, that our longing to be known and treasured as unique individuals finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. If you really had that in your life, it would transform your view of yourself and the way you live in this world. So for instance, one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century was an African-American scholar named Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman was Martin Luther King's spiritual mentor. In fact, uh, Dr. King used to carry around one of Howard Thurman's books with him in his briefcase wherever he went. That's how important Howard Thurman was. In 1947, he gave a lecture at Harvard University um, on the significance of African-American spirituals. These are songs that were sung by slaves who had come to faith in Jesus. And, and, and what did that faith in Jesus do for them? Howard Thurman invites his listeners to consider the reality of the life of a slave. He says, the slave was a tool, a thing, a utility, a commodity, but he was not a person. If a slave were killed, it was merely a property loss, a matter of bookkeeping. To live constantly in such a climate makes the struggle for essential human dignity unbearably desperate. But the gospel, Howard Thurman says, he actually gave them a way to know that they mattered, that they were significant, special human beings. So he gives examples of the kinds of songs that they sung. One of them goes like this, oh, write my name, oh, write my name. The angels in heaven are going to write my name. Yes, write my name with a golden pen. The, the gospel gave them an assurance that they mattered. It told them that, that they were significant, that their names were significant, so significant that they were worthy of being written in heaven by angels with pens of gold, no less. 
And so Howard Thurman concludes by saying this, that here at last was a place where the slave was counted in. He had the dignity of personal registration. Friends, the gospel is the way that we know that we matter as individuals because God entered history as a human being to put his love on you and make you his child. I don't know every single one of you in this room, but I know this about every single one of us. We're all looking for that. We are all looking for that. And that leads to our next point. We've just talked about what are we looking for? Love, significance, and the love and significance that can only be truly ours from God. But secondly, what are the ways that we miss it? Because if you look at this passage, it's really interesting the way John structured it. In the first five verses, we get this incredible picture of an infinite, eternal God creating the cosmos and ruling over it. It is a very lofty picture. It's a transcendent picture. But then in verse six, there's this radical change of scene. All of a sudden, it's like we're just plopped down right in the middle of every, everyday, ordinary, mundane reality here on earth. It goes from in the beginning to there was a man named John who came to bear witness about Jesus. Here's what this means. It means that connecting to God is, is not a matter of us learning how to transcend ordinary, everyday reality in order to meet God, as much as it is a matter of, of the God of the universe coming down into our ordinary, everyday reality and revealing himself. In other words, the gospel is not about us escaping our reality. It's about God invading and inhabiting our reality. Do you realize what this means for us? Because this is where things get a little difficult. The way God has actually inhabited our reality is through Jesus Christ. Now, this is difficult for us. It's actually where things get a little risky or dangerous for us. Because in verse 9, notice John says, the light, that's Jesus, is coming into the world. But then in verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So the beauty, the amazing thing is that God has entered history. The, the dangerous thing is that it's possible for us to fail to recognize him and to end up actually rejecting him. Friends, if you're willing to go there, this is like a fairy tale. Frederick Buechner was a great, is a great Christian writer. He wrote a little book called Telling the Truth. In that book, he says the gospel is like a fairy tale. And he doesn't mean that the gospel isn't true, uh, he means that fairy tales show us things about our world that are true. And one of the main features in fairy tales, he says, is that um, whenever that magical enchanted figure shows up who holds in their hands the power of life or death or blessing and curse, that it's very easy for us to, to miss that figure or, or to um, overlook them or fail to recognize them because they appear so ordinary and oftentimes even grotesque. So for instance, in Beauty and the Beast, you know, if you're familiar with that story, uh, the magical, powerful enchantress disguises herself as an old beggar woman, and she goes to the home of a wealthy, handsome, but selfish young prince. And she offers him a rose in exchange for shelter for the night. The prince looks at her, and all he sees is a dirty old beggar woman, and so he turns her away. And because he rejects her, the, the enchantress transforms him into a hideous beast until he can learn, uh, uh, until he can um, um, earn the love of someone who's able to see past his own grotesque appearance. 
Frederick Buechner says that those stories capture our imagination because they capture something true about the world that we live in, that we long for things like uh, goodness, beauty, truth, justice, redemption, and love that never dies, but also that our experience in this world is kind of like being lost in an enchanted wood. And depending on how we respond to the various figures and people and characters that we meet, we might not make it out of alive. In other words, in a fairy tale, the, the joy is real and the joy is promised, but the danger of missing it is very, very real. So for instance, I, you know, I don't know if you ever feel that way about life. You know, a purely scientific approach to life would say that's ridiculous, but most of us, we're not so sure. Most of us are open to the possibility that maybe there's something beyond something more, and, but also that our journey to find it, whatever it is, is filled with peril. So for instance, W.H. Auden, he was one of the greatest poets of the 20th century. Uh, like many people, he grew up as a kid going to church, but then as he got older, he was a young person. He left church, he put away childish things, grew up, got a mature point of view, left the church. He ended up becoming one of the leading lights among the left-wing political atheist activists of England in the 1930s. That was like the woke crowd uh, of their day and age. But then in 1939, W.H. Auden, he moved to New York City. There were some things that were shifting in his heart, things that would eventually lead him to become a Christian. But in, um, on September 1st, 1939, the Nazis invaded Poland. It was the beginning of World War II and a bellwether of much greater evil to come. W.H. Auden, when that happened, he wrote one of his most famous poems. It begins like this. I sit in one of the dives on 52nd Street, uncertain and afraid. That you can almost picture it, right? Not, it's not just a bar, it's a dive. You can almost smell the beer, the stale cigarettes, maybe a little body odor. It's very ordinary, very mundane, very average. That's where we are. We go to places like that to be distracted. We go there to forget. We go there to be numb. And that's exactly what Auden says. He, uh, he goes on saying, faces along the bar cling to the average day. The lights must never go out. The music must always play. You know, we don't want to face the reality of our existence. Why must the lights never go out? Why must the music always play? Auden says, lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night who have never been happy or good. In other words, W.H. Auden was saying, yeah, in one sense, we just live in ordinary, everyday reality. Here I am sitting in a bar on 52nd Street. But in a truer, deeper sense, it's like we're in a fairy tale. We're lost in a haunted wood. The joy we seek is real. The danger of missing it is also very real. Friends, the gospel, this passage that we're reading, it, that's exactly what it's saying to us, that the God of the universe has entered history, but that God doesn't look the way we expect him to look. Here's this ordinary Jewish peasant. And I know that in our modern age, we might say, oh no, Jesus was a great human teacher, but if that's all he is, we're not, miss, we're see, we're not seeing the real Jesus, we're missing him. Or if we say, well, he was a great spiritual leader. If that's all he is, we're missing Jesus. Or even if we say he was a prophet or a revolutionary, if that's all he is, you get the point. 
we miss the real Jesus. If, if, if what we do with Jesus is we shrink him down to a manageable size so that we can control him, if that's what we do, we do it because we don't want to lose control over our lives. You know, we long for love and significance, but because we're lost and afraid, we look for that love and significance and all kinds of other things that don't have the power to give it to us. And that's what John is showing us in this passage. He says the love and significance that we long for, it's ours. It it comes to us by becoming children of God. But then he goes through a whole list of ways that we could actually miss it. So if you look at verse 13, he says, you know that love you're looking for, that significance you're looking for? It comes to you not, notice how he says it, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a husband. Now, what do those things mean? Blood, what he's talking about is... um, your racial uh, or ethnic identity. It could also mean your country or your national identity. So those are things like your racial identity, your political identity, your national identity. Those are great things. But if you seek your identity and your love and your significance in those things, they will only end up dragging you deeper into the haunted wood, not out of it. Or he goes on and he talks about the flesh. That that means any kind of human achievement or human accomplishment. So again, if we're looking for our ultimate love and significance in things like career or money or comfort or status or prestige, those are wonderful things, but they don't have the power to give us the love and significance we're longing for. Even um, he goes on to say the, the will of a husband, that means things like family or marriage or romance. Those are wonderful, amazing things, uh, but they can't give us the love and significance that we long for. If we expect them to, then our expectations are going to crush those things and their inevitable failure to live up to our expectations will end up crushing us. They can't fulfill our longings for love and significance. All of those things, John is saying, are ways of missing Jesus, ways of failing to recognize him, and hence ways of actually rejecting Jesus. And friends, understand, this is not just a danger for those of you exploring faith. This is a danger for Christians too, maybe even especially for Christians. Because when our um, faith in Jesus becomes so identified with politics or wealth or comfort or status or position or prestige, then even though we can fool ourselves into thinking we're really following Jesus, we're really worshiping those things. And that is especially dangerous for us in this current cultural climate here in 21st century America Friends, we long for love and significance. God offers it to us by becoming his children. We miss those things when we miss the real Jesus, when we fail to recognize him for who he really is, and we actually end up rejecting him. And listen, that doesn't mean that things like politics are not important or that family or career are not wonderful, amazing things. They are. But the better something is, the more wonderful something is, the more dangerous it is for us to turn those things into an idol and worship those things instead of God. And that leads to our last point. We've, We've seen, what are we looking for? Well, love and significance, but it can only come to us through God. Secondly, what are the ways we miss it? Well, we fail to recognize who Jesus is, fail to see him as he really is, and we end up rejecting him. But lastly, how does this love really come to us? That's the last thing we see. Because here's the question. All right, if, if, if the danger is that we fail to recognize Jesus for who he really is, then how do we see him as he really is? 
John helps us in verse 12. He says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now notice he says, become children of God. The question comes up, well, isn't everybody automatically a child of God? And the answer is no. Which I know that sounds really jarring in our inclusive pluralistic society. And the answer is, you know, a little more nuanced, okay? There is a sense on the one hand, yes, every single human being is created by God, created in God's image. Paul in Acts chapter 17, he's, he's speaking to a crowd of philosophers in Athens. He says, we're all God's offspring. In, in other words, we're all created by God. We're all created in God's image. But if we're rejecting God, if we're saying, I am going to look for the ultimate love and significance I long for, not in you, but in something else, then by definition, we are not God's children. So how do we actually become children of God? John says, to all who believed in his name. Now, here's what this means. First, believing is not just a head thing. It's almost better to translate that word trust. Because it's not just intellectually believing certain things about Jesus. It's, it's more trusting in him as a person. That means following him. That means surrendering your entire life to him. But secondly, he says it, it's, it's trusting in his name. In his name. Okay, now that does not mean that the name of Jesus is like a magic formula. And if you're just tacking that name onto the end of all your prayers, then voila, you get whatever you prayed for. No. In the Bible, God's name is the manifestation in this world of his character and his essence. Even in our society, we have a concept for that. Um, like if somebody ever asks you to do something for them and you say, don't worry about it, I put my name behind it. That God's name is the manifestation in this world of his character and his essence. So John is saying that believing in Jesus' name, believing in the character and the essence of who Jesus really is, that's how you become a, ch a child of God, trusting in that. Now, this is where things, again, get a little complicated for us. Uh, there, there's a, a professor of American religion at Boston University named Stephen Prothrow. He wrote a book um, called American Jesus, How the Son of God Became a National Icon. And what he does is he goes through American history and he shows how every age, every generation in America has a tendency to remake J uh, Jesus in its own image. So he begins back during the Revolutionary War in the Age of Enlightenment, the 18th century. Uh, people were more likely to see Jesus as a wise teacher. And then he just goes throughout the ages. We've had different versions of Jesus. Um, some of them are like sentimental Jesus, manly redeemer Jesus. There's white Jesus, black Jesus, Buddhist Jesus, Mormon Jesus. Uh, getting more into our day and age, there's boyfriend Jesus, progressive Jesus, Republican Jesus. One of the big takeaways of the book is that every age, every generation, we all have a tendency to want to remake Jesus in our own image and project upon him the values and assumptions that are important to us. That means it's very easy for us to just miss Jesus for who he really is. So what we do when we do that is we're not really meeting the real Jesus. We're just meeting what we want to meet. It's kind of like, you know, if somebody met you and they said to you, I know your name is Richard, but I prefer to think of you as a Roger. <laughs> you would say, not only do you not know the real me, you don't want to know me. You don't want to know me. 
We do the same thing with Jesus. To trust in the name of Jesus, to really know Jesus, means, means to trust in his name, to trust in the manifestation of his character, who he really is. I, you know, one of the ways this happens, at the very least, it means spending lots and lots of time soaking yourself in the gospel accounts of his life. It means seeking him in prayer. It means following him obediently. It means sharing your life with others who are doing the same thing. But let me put a little bit finer point on it. How do you know you're meeting the real Jesus? John actually helps us in this passage. He says... Um, the reason Jesus came, verse 12, is to make us children of God, okay? That's the reason Jesus came. In, in other words, Jesus wants to make it possible for us to share the same status and intimacy and access and love that he experiences as the one and only son of God. But how does that happen? He was in the world, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own but his own did not receive him. In other words, Jesus was rejected by the very people he came to save. And understand that, that this rejection is not some unfortunate accident that happened to derail what would have been otherwise a very brilliant career as a spiritual leader. No. Jesus came to be rejected. And the ultimate place that happens is on the cross. The cross is the way that his rejection on the cross is the way that Jesus makes us children of God. His, he was rejected so that we could be accepted and not just rejected by us. It's worse. It's more horrifying than even that. Jesus was rejected by the Father. If you're not meeting that Jesus, you're not meeting the real Jesus. Jesus was rejected by the Father. The only way we could be accepted by the Father was if Jesus was rejected by the Father. I don't know of um, many more chilling examples of what that might be like than a video I once saw of something called the still face experiment. It's uh, a study that was done on the attachment and bonding that happens between babies and their mothers. So the video is of a, a little baby boy with his mother. And as they're interacting, you can see that even though the baby can't talk, they've got like a whole special language that's just all their own. The, the rituals, the facial expressions, the signals and cues and, and ways of communicating with each other, it's incredible to watch. But then at a certain point in the experiment, the mother turns her face away, and then when she turns her face back, it just goes blank, blank face. And no matter what the baby does to get her to respond to him, she's, there's no expression, blank face. And at first, you can see the child is just confused. It, he starts going into the rituals and the expressions and the signals and the cues, almost as if to say, hey, come on, you know how this works, and the mother won't respond to him, blank face. And as this continues on, the child goes from confused to agitated, to alarmed, and ultimately to outright panic and terror. He starts crying uncontrollably. It's horrifying to watch. Friends, there is nothing more painful and terrifying than being shut out, cut off, ignored, and forgotten. It's painful enough when an utter stranger does that to you. But the more someone's love really matters to you, the more horrifying it is when they do it to you. Dear ones, don't you know that on the cross, Jesus Christ got a lot more than a blank face from the Father? He was utterly forsaken, ignored, forgotten, and shut out. 
He was unknown of God so that we could be known by God. Jesus Christ was rejected. He was shut out by the Father so that we could be welcomed in. Friends, the more you see Jesus doing that for you, the more you're meeting the real Jesus. And the more that takes hold of your heart, the more that you know that you are loved like that, the more you can face whatever this world will throw at you. Whether it's um, criticism or rejection or financial insecurity or disappointment or devastation or sickness or failure, whatever it might be. And it doesn't mean those things don't hurt. Of course they do. It means you're not devastated by them. You're not destroyed by them. Because the more you know that the love and significance you long for is yours in Jesus, the more you see that you are loved like that, that, the more you know that that love and significance is yours. It's secure. It can never be touched. It can never be taken away from you. Because it doesn't depend on you or anything you do. It depends on Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. Trust in that. The more you trust in that, the more that love becomes a fountain in your own life and the more it transforms you into a fountain of the same love in the lives of others. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning. God, you are a cosmic creator of all things. We can't even begin to imagine who you are and what you've done, that before the beginning of the universe, you were already there. You have existed from all eternity. Our minds, we can't even wrap our minds around that. And yet, you are the God. You are the creator who has entered into this ordinary, everyday world. You have entered reality through the person of Jesus Christ. We pray this morning that you would give us eyes and hearts to see you and recognize you and worship you and love you and follow you more, more and more obediently and faithfully and devotedly. And Lord, I pray especially that you would um, help us to do that, not because we have some virtue or um, abilities of our own, but because you have shed your love and your life and your light abroad in our own hearts and lives. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.